Welcome, and thanks for joining us in this episode of CAFE, the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel podcast. In this installment, our host Margaret Cohen is joined by guests Addo Quayson, Richard Halpern, and John Kerrigan to discuss the place of tragedy in post-colonial literature. Addo Quayson is a professor of English at Stanford University. Richard Halpern, recently retired, was Eric Maria Remark Professor of Literature at NYU, and John Kerrigan is a professor of literature at St. John's College, Cambridge. This conversation was recorded on November 15, 2019, shortly before our guests gave papers in a panel on the same topic, hosted by the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel. The interview begins with an anecdote from Addo, then Richard's response. Margaret joins the conversation next, then John. We're thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you, so thank you again for listening in as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves. Well, I have to start with an anecdote of um, how I got to tragedy. And uh, it's uh, at university, I had a teacher, that uh, a professor, that inspired me greatly. And he was noted for a characteristic which I didn't quite share in terms of the opinions. He was extremely lazy. He hated uh, grading papers, so that he never he never did. So if you give him your paper during the semester, there is no there will be no sign of it. But to me, he had the mind of God. Uh, he introduced us to the history and theory of literary criticism. He also taught a paper on Shakespeare, and he was the one who introduced me or us to Aristotle the poetics, you know, very systematic. And he used to talk, speak very slowly. He was a very, very slow speaker, but also a slow reader. He read slowly and he spoke really slowly. And uh, he was very concerned that we understood that all literary criticism was about method. And, And what better way to introduce us to method than through Aristotle. So that ignited my, my interest. But at the time, my, our, my range or our range of the knowledge of tragedies was actually limited to Shakespeare and a couple of uh, the Greek tragedies, but actually mainly Sophocles. I was so taken with Mr. Denkabi, he was called, that uh, I discovered through the grapevine that he had actually gone to Cambridge to St. John's College. Uh, and so that also, so it my interest in uh, learning more about Aristotle, but also going to Cambridge. But more importantly, the essay that I submitted for my graduate studies was an application of Aristotle to Achebe's Things Fall Apart. And um, I've, always, I've looked for the paper many times, I can't find it. So when I came to understand uh, tragedy more fully or more elaborately, I never managed to completely separate myself from the Aristotelian scaffolding. So the book that I'm writing is compl- anyone that knows about Aristotle will see that it's essentially draped over an Aristotelian scaffolding. And it was that uh, undergraduate uh, professor who ignited the interest in me. Uh, I, as well, am entangled in that Aristotelian scaffolding, and happily so. 
um, for me, tragedy is about human action, and it's about the um, consequentiality of human action and the coherence and intelligibility of human action, and it does that by depicting human actions that go awry, like that go badly for some reason, and the degree of catastrophe produced uh, by a particular action is a kind of register, in a weird way, of the significance of, of that action. Um, uh, so in that sense, I don't have an original theory of tragedy. Um, I adhere largely to Aristotle's, though I'm also impressed by Hegel's reading of tragedy as um, showing two ethical systems in, in conflict with each other. Um, but I think Aristotle's is better for getting at the formal qualities of tragedy, why it's structured in a certain way, what it's trying to do, what its um, effects on the, on the hearer or reader um, are supposed to be. I teach things fall apart with Hegel's theory of tragedy oh, because mm -hmm. I feel that the um, principles in the collective at the beginning oh. map well onto Antigone and mm -hmm. Creon, and I'm just wondering, Ado, if that is uh, a theory that you've thought about. <laughs> well, I have, you know, <laughs> I have used the Hegel and he appears in the book at some point. But what I take from Aristotle is not just action, but the atrophy of the possibility of making ethical choices. Mm. You know, that is the conditions. So what he interprets as reversal of fortune, which of course it's a catastrophe, I, I look almost like at the prequel to the reversal. And the prequel to the reversal for me are conditions that undermine the capacity to make proper eth ethical choices, which of course I extract from the Nicomachean ethics, where he elaborates the good life and impediments to the good life and so on. Now, I said earlier that uh, it was uh, the poetics that uh, that I was introduced to and that ignited my interest. And in fact, I stayed with the poetic, poetics for the long time. But I rather suspect that the poetics does not give enough. It gives a lot of payout for thinking about the, the form or the plot of tragedy and so on. But I, it doesn't give enough uh, room to explore the problem of action, shall we say. Action requires, or ethical action, actually requires certain conditions uh, to enable it. The poetics doesn't give enough room for that. You have to read a lot into it. Whereas the Nicomachean ethics, it's all about you know, virtue, the possibility of virtue, and so on. So to go back to your question, of course, I, I mean, the Hegelian reading maps onto things fall apart quite well. But uh, apart from that is uh, the way that unbeknownst to Okonkwo, but he doesn't recognize it, that his uh, world has changed so much that when he declares what he assumes to be a military, you know, a call to arms against the, the district commissioner, he's calling, making that call in, uh, under conditions that have so changed that his people cannot recognize it as a, a call to arms. So by the time he makes the call to arms, but he doesn't recognize it. He doesn't see that the conditions have altered what might constitute a comprehensive call to arms. He, so they ask, for example, why did he do that? So he overhears them saying, why, why would they say, why did he do that? So that's how I see it, is that progressive uh, 
alteration of the life worlds, these traditional life worlds of this African community under the contact with colonialism. The irony or, or the serious uh, difficulty for Konko is that he doesn't see it. He assumes that the wellsprings of action are the same as, as the beginning. Well, like uh, Richard and Atto, I've always been engaged with the Aristotelian model, partly because my major statement about tragedy, a big book called Revenge Tragedy, begins, like Richard's Eclipse of Action, with the Greeks. And you can't think about the Greeks without reflecting on Aristotle. But also partly because my central concern in that book, with revenge, takes you very close to the Aristotelian notion that drama is an imitation of an action. Because that is what revenge is, too. You can't repay a wrong unless you engage mimetically with it. On the other hand, I can see uh, the force of what Margaret's saying about the Hegelian model, because if you're looking at post-colonial situations, you're often watching societies under great stress undergoing revolutionary development from an older order, a kind of ancien regime which might be tribal or aristocratic, into one that's uh, attempting to find a, a democratic route into, into the future and a modernizing route into the future. And this is what Hegel's account of the Antigone is reflecting on. It's one reason why, in the end, Hegel comes down on the side of Creon. I know that's not at the core of his analysis, but that's where his sympathies lie. So I wanted to put to Atto whether he doesn't think that that means that Hegel is often a more useful, as it were, framework for thinking about uh, post-colonial tragedy. Clearly, Okonkwo is a kind of prince, and we see mm -hmm. his fall. Mm -hmm. We see his tragic flaws in his Oedipus-like anger, and the error that comes from his maybe flaw, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. of being a stammerer. He can't yes, get yes, out yes. what he wants to say, so he has to be physical. Mm -hmm. I see all the various ways in which one could very fruitfully apply Aristotle to things fall apart. But I wonder nonetheless whether the background sense of a telescope transition, a too rapid movement of this society into modernity, doesn't mean that the Antigone is quite close to it. Yeah, I can see how the Antigone would be close to it in terms of the, you know, quite dramatic, you know, shifts in the basis for undertaking any form of epic action, any epic gesture. But the other thing that uh, the novel illustrates is the gradual and slow emergence of different modes of uh, validation, of self-validation, which are not necessarily in the grand way that Okonko would imagine. His son becomes a Christian. Yeah. His son becomes a Christian. His friend, uh, his best friend, Obierica, has some doubts about, for example, the mode of punishment when Okonko inadvertently shoots the, the young boy and he's uh, exiled. Uh, Obierica reflects in his mind, but he's not actually able to push the reflection to its conclusion because that would be a form of, not blasphemy because it's not a, but um, a form of disavowal. So he thinks up to a point and then he stops. But that stop, the point at which he stops reflecting why this major punishment is the point at which a secular mind or secular consciousness would have investigated other ways of judgment. So the 
point at which Oberica stops his reflections is the point at which a secular consciousness will have mm. then gone on to investigate. So he doesn't do it, but there's a hint of it, which of course Achebe develops uh, much later. So this, uh, as it were, emergence almost, it isn't a proliferation, it's more like an emergence of different modes of validation of uh, aspirational matrices, shall we say. We, we see it more fully in his uh, later novels where the contestatory matrices of aspiration. So you are traditional, but I am a trader. I'm a merchant. So as a merchant, I no longer subscribe to the deity and the cult. And so we see, we see it incipiently in uh, in things fall apart. So the clash is not simply between old order and new order, even though that exists in the novel. So for example, the converts. The early converts in Things Fall Apart are the ones who become court uh, functionaries. They become translators, they become prison wardens, and so on. And so Christianity and colonialism introduce a new grammar of merit and meritocracy. The old grammar is through hard work, military prowess, farming, and so on. The new order is through mastery of the symbolic systems that are brought by. So there is that clash, that quite clearly. But below that are all kinds of emergences of different um, modes of validation and so on. So it is Hegelian at one level, but I think it's, uh, it eludes the ex- exclusive Hegelian. Can I open a new front on what you've yes. been saying about Aristotle by returning to your reservations about his view of action? He's a scientist. He believes that one thing leads to another. Yes. Greek models of causation are not what they became in the Roman and the later, as it were, Baconian world. Nonetheless, he thinks that actions have consequences and also causes. But if you look at someone like uh, Shoinka, Mm. he's obviously learnt a lot from Greek tragedy, Greek models. That's a world of turbulent Mm. causation, inconsequentiality and precarity. A play like The Road, for instance. Yes. Or even Death of the King's Horseman, which is about flux and shift from one human state to another, doesn't map very well onto the Aristotelian structures. Mm -hmm. In Death of the King's Horseman, back to the question of uh, new modes of validation, Shoyinka is very, as it were, elevating the Yoruba culture. But at the same time, he sneaks in a kind of autoethnographic critique. And where it comes from is that in the early part of the play, when the priest singer is singing the praises of the election, the king's horseman. The praise singing is supposed to be a form of ritual elicitation. He's eliciting his sacrificial self, the pharmacos, his self as pharmacos, but he's eliciting it, eliciting it through singing all kinds of praise names and epithets. And Do you hear me? Oh, so-and-so. Do you hear me? Oh. And the guy says, yes, I hear you. And so, However, the role of the election is supposed to be, or historically was supposed to have been that of the military commander. So he's actually head of the army. Mm. However, the elicitations, <clears throat> the ritual elicitations, do not invoke anything about military prowess. All the ritual elicitations are of his prowess in bed with women. Mm. In other words, Sunika <laughs> has almost put in there that this guy is not fit to be your pharmacos. The mode 
of of ritual elicitation. The, the, the grammar or the idiom is a standard Yoruba heroic idiom. They call it Oriki. Mm-hmm. But the content is deflationary. But no one notices this until it is too late. But but then the, the market woman endorses his choice, right? There's a moment does, of hesita- yeah. hesitation yeah, at the she beginning does, yeah. of the play yeah. and and says, yes, yeah, this is right. And yeah. everyone seems to agree that it's right. And the for one night. Shows for, for one, one night. night well, that's all it's going to be. It's going <laughs> all, to be a very, all, all, all that's going to be very short term. <laughs> well, he says he wants to leave something behind, right? Yes. He's, going to, he's making mm. the passage and the last thing he's going to do before this passage is kind of leave his seed mm. behind, yeah. um, especially since he thinks his oldest son has been taken from him. I, I do want to talk about Death in the King's Horseman a little more, because on the one hand, it strikes me as kind of, in a way, the perfect Hegelian tragedy, yes, yes, almost yes, even definitely. more than Antigone, because, yes. because it embodies Hegel's sense that not only are two ethical systems in clash, but the yes. ethical systems are also institutions, right? I mean, yes. so the family and the state are not just ethical principles, they're the institutions. institutions as well. And so here you have the colonial state and you have the, you know, the tribal um, rituals of, of the Arube kind mm. of, and, and you have two characters who, in a kind of absolute sense, um, embody them. Hegel would say, Okay, so tragedy is a clash of two forms of the good. Yes. And I guess my question for you is, because this is something that's always bothered me, since Pilkings is so parodied, you know, he's so ridiculous, and he's so obviously mocked. mocked, is his view that it's wrong to let someone commit suicide, is that given any ethical seriousness in the play? So would do you, in the end, have a, have a Hegelian situation in which they're too... Mm. weighty mm. ethical imperatives coming into con- clash with each other mm. or or is it just that one is empty and corrupt and, and well I, I wouldn't say uh, that Pilkins is corrupt but he's oblivious yeah. he's yeah. oblivious of the first of all he doesn't know anything about the culture he doesn't bother now uh, Shoinka gives us uh, Pilkins's wife Jane mm. as uh, a kind of critical counterfoil and it is Pilkins's wife who, as it were, shows up how empty her husband is. Mm. So his uh, declamations about duty, it is my duty, because the place also about different understandings of duty. He thinks he's doing his duty as the district commissioner to prevent what he thinks will ultimately come to a social political disturbance. Mm. So in that sense, he, he is right. But because of the degree of misunderstanding, and, and other things that he's not a person who is um, adequately, he's not compassionate, for example. He doesn't have, he has very few values that would make us admire him. He's not compassionate. He's clearly dismissive of religion also. You know, he dismisses both the Muslim and the the Christian, the newly converted Christian in his household. So almost everything about him is laughable or dismissible, except his sense of duty. And his sense of duty is what echoes exactly the election of sense of duty. They are both duty-bound. In this, they are both duty-bound spirits or, or persons. But this guy, that's all he has. The only thing that he has that is uh, the only redeeming um, feature 
characteristic that he has is his sense of duty. Everything else is false. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it, that Pilkings is brought down by his rigid sense of duty and a lesson by his flexibility yes. in his sense of duty towards the tribe and the customs. I would say that Death and the King's Horseman looks like a Hegelian tragedy, kind of wants to be a Hegelian tragedy, which Shoyinka really does not want it to be a Hegelian tragedy. Remember the preface where he says that this must not be a drama yeah. about the dilemma that yeah. Pilkings faces. He doesn't want him to be a Korean, agonised by the choices, and that's probably why he's presented so parodically in the play as well, yeah. to prevent the audience sympathising with his dilemmas. I agree that Jane's got a bit more to her. This is why the British Empire, of course, never just sent out diplomats. They made sure their wives went with them, so there'd be some common sense on board. You also mention Alessin's son, Olunde, and he's a very interesting character because, in the end, he carries the burden of the tragedy by dying for the group. And yet he also represents modernization. He's awkwardly straddled between the world of medicine and Western knowledge and a fealty to traditional rights. And I wonder whether the play fully realizes his uh, potential or whether he simply, as it were, rounds off the story. I don't know what you feel about mm. that, uh, Atto. Well, what Lunde is a very fascinating character because um, the Pilkinses uh, arrange for him to literally escape from from tradition and go and become a doctor in, 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 in London or England. But when he goes, he he's thrust right into the, I think it's the Second World War, soldiers and so on. And he comes to understand the propaganda machinery and how they misdescribe or they falsely describe what is really mayhem. As a doctor in the hospitals, he sees it. Now, this alerts him to the fact that all cultural values are ultimately relative. And the social contract is based on degrees of, uh, of falsehood. This uh, sense or this uh, insight is what actually prepares him to sacrifice himself for his uh, community. Since all uh, cultural or social values are relative, his ritual sacrifice is at par with anything else that he has learned elsewhere. Now, this is also a second critique that uh, Schoenka sneaks into the play. His father, anyone who becomes the king's horseman, is trained from infancy to be the sacrificial carrier. Now, this kid has left. He has left. He's gone abroad. So it means that Schoenka is saying that you guys don't even, your rituals of preparation are not if they're not adequate to the event that has to be done, which is the, sac the self-sacrifice. But also, it may actually be redundant, because this guy who finally laid his life forward learned how to do this not by being trained as the king's horseman, but by taking the complete, actually, by disavowing that entirely. So I think that is also a critique of the, as it were, the apparent, the, the weaknesses. I want to go back to your reference to the Swigenka's preface yeah. and, and, and how seriously we should take it um, <laughs> as a paradigm for approaching the play. Because I find it, I have to say, I find it completely unreliable. Yeah, um, I agree with you. He says this is not a play about the clash of cultures. Mm -hmm. Of course it's a play. It, it, about it is not Hegelian. Basically he's saying he's yeah, not Hegelian. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he's saying he's not writing a Hegelian tragedy, but he is writing a Hegelian yeah. tragedy. I think that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be somewhat sensitive about the fact, mm -hmm. and he's trying to, and I understand why the 
phrase clash of cultures might sound a little pat, mm. and you wouldn't want a kind of pat interpretation. But I think, in fact, this that it, it, is, it is what, what is. Mm-hmm. The other thing I find interesting about the play is we don't find, I keep forgetting the protagonist name, Elisioba. His moment of decision never comes, right? I mean, that's the whole point. It's skipped over by the play because he's taken mm-hmm. prisoner before mm-hmm. he has a chance to whatever doubts we may or may mm-hmm. not harbor about whether he's going to sacrifice himself are precluded by the fact that he's taken mm-hmm. prisoner and so this gets to your point about the preconditions of ethical action right mm-hmm. i mean he simply he has that taken away from him and that gets to something i'll go back to aristotle again in a minute because you talked about and i think this is important sort of the silences and the poetics, and that Aristotle doesn't talk about, he, he doesn't say what the preconditions of ethical action are, which as you point it, it out, he does go into in the mm. Nicomachean ethics, mm. and largely has to do with being a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be wealthy enough so that you're not working, because mm. if you work, and, and you're not sick. you can't, you're <laughs> not sick, you're not a slave, you're not ugly, you're none of those things. <laughs> but there's another thing he's silent about in the poetics, which is, I think, equally important, and that's um, fate or religion. Okay, so because that's yeah. the mechanism in Greek tragedy that largely deprives. I mean, his favorite play is Oedipus the King, but it isn't a play about fate for him at all. There's no religious apparatus. He's determinedly secular in his approach to the play. He still says this this would be a play about about Oedipus's actions, even though he tries to do a certain series of things that is thwarted. But Richard, I actually this now let me turn the tables on you okay, and ask please, you yeah. a question. <laughs> you know, uh, in the Eclipse of of Action, uh, which I read with great interest, for some reason, as I was reading it, Athamelus uh, the Crucible came mm. strongly to mind, and it comes up now because uh, it is the most quote unquote African play. Hmm. In the American tradition, lots of ritual, yeah. lots of belief in the mm-hmm. otherworldly, mm-hmm. lots of the machinery, right. you know, the tragic machinery requires a certain, you know, uh, subscription mm-hmm. to these, all kinds of these uh, the belief systems. Now, you you did write about uh, an, a different Miller play. Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman. Right. But don't you think that uh, the crucible would have fit in? And the crucible is, is, can be subjected to, uh, submitted to a Hegelian reading also. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, but isn't it, I mean, not to be too reductive, isn't it just a secularist critique of those beliefs? I mean, it's not, I don't think Miller is taking them seriously. He's, he's showing them as a kind of counterpart to... You know, whatever McCarthyist, uh, you know, trials and so forth. There's a kind of totalizing and totalitarian system in which people are caught. I mean, there is a kind of allegorical dimension to the play. I take your point out that witchcraft is one bit of connective tissue between African traditions and Europeans. So it's no accident that Macbeth has been so big in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can I um, turn to another topic that we haven't quite addressed, which is derivation and the shadow of models of tragedy. I mean, even back in the Greek theatre, of course, Euripides is immensely self-conscious about his precursors. But if you think about Schoenker, uh, or even Achebe, certainly 
uh, a tragic text like Seasonal Migration to the North, mm -hmm. you've got the presence of the Greeks or Shakespeare very much in the tissue of, ex of the reading experience. And I wonder whether you feel that's a, a distinctive condition of post-colonial tragedy, mm -hmm. rather like being after the empire, you're after mm -hmm. the empire's mm -hmm. literature. I could piggyback on that. Say, 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 please. I, I just want to ask about tragedy in, uh, in theater and tragedy in the novel, mm -hmm. um, and maybe come back to what you originally said mm -hmm. about the public and the importance in Hegel's model of reconstituting a public of theater goers mm -hmm. that will move beyond the crisis that's represented in Antigone and in terms of talking about how novels um, interpolate publics and certainly season of immigration to the north I mean the unreliable narrator and the difficulty knowing what to do with so much of that novel is really important I'm just wondering if you could throw the the, the difference between the reader and then the public of theater goers into yours uh, there's a guy Terry Eagleton whom I'm going to talk about uh, later uh, in sweet violence he has a really fascinating uh, note take on the novel versus uh, theater as tragedies he says uh, the novel basically to reduce it to a kind of a formula is that the novel has too much time <laughs> you know so the, so the novel so he, he thinks that the novel is not of course all of sweet uh, sweet uh, violence is full of novels so he discusses lots of them but he says that fundamentally the novel has too much time he has too much time to describe the arc of social relations and so on. Whereas the theater, the tragic theater, is precisely about there not being time to resolve the contradictions and the conflict and the clashes and so on. So that the transposition into the, into the novel form, I think that the novel often requires a kind of dramatic, and by dramatic, I mean both in terms of the staging of, of characters, but a, a form of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. The novel frequently requires a form of catastrophe to ensure that it is really a tragedy. But for Hegel, I think the novel is not essentially a tragic form. Well. And I think this is something I'm going to argue. <laughs> I've argued in my book, I'm going to argue in my paper that the, that the essential vocation mm. of the novel for Hegel is tragicomic. Um, it's a form in which the antagonism between tragedy and comedy gets blunted mm. so that it's serious, but it's not catastrophic. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can't write tragic novels, and mm. Hegel would have been aware of some obviously famous examples, Sorrows of Jumper, and so but 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 that the but that the novel is not, in its essence and in its vocation, um, a tragic form, and it's and that it's and therefore always pushing a little bit against its generic boundaries, which are ill-defined for Hegel in the first place when it when it takes to tell a tragic a tragic tale. Our friend Aristotle wouldn't have had any difficulty in using the term tragedy of a narrative poem like the Iliad. Uh, and I think there's no principled objection to the idea of a, a concentrated, grim <laughs> narrative, a novel, being a tragedy. One thinks of uh, Yvonne Vera, for instance, or Season of Migration. Mm -hmm. yes. Actually, most of the examples one would come up would, would be very concentrated with a limited cast of characters, yes. a bit like a play. It mm. wouldn't be war and peace, as it mm. were. If you have too many connections, too many proliferations, too many qualifying narratives, you're going to disperse the spirit of tragedy, which in the end is a set of artistic choices as well as existential condition. 
So I, I think I'd approach the problem from, from, from that angle. Um, whether the novel has to be tragicomic, I don't know. I mean, one way of thinking about this would be to say, what would Aristotle have made of the Greek romance, which follows, you know, 100 years later? Probably he would have said, well, Homer's tragic, but that can't be. It goes on too long. There are too many interlacing stories, and so on. You could argue that Aristotle begins the movement of thinking about tragedy as novel before the fact, simply from the fact that he was in exile from Athens when he wrote the Poetics. He was not, he did not see theater, and this is famously reflected in the fact that in the Poetics, emphasis on spectacle or, you know, the sort of mechanism of producing plays on stage is simply absent, and his argument says these are the unimportant part. What matters is plot, right? What matters is narrative. So in a certain way, even before the fact, he's narrativizing tragedy. It's no longer a performance. It's no longer anything with a chorus. It's not, none of that sort of Dionysian abyss that, that, that Nietzsche will go on about in the 19th century is present at all for Aristotle. The drama is a story, and you can do just as well by having it in book form and reading it as you do mm. sitting in front of it. And in fact, maybe even better because you're not distracted by what for mm. Aristotle or... Well, or the Aristotelian is full of such prejudiced remarks about the theatre. Think of Dr. Johnson. He yes. has an honourable tradition. Yeah. yeah. The thing, though, is the, the, as it were, the social impact. Because it's a, a group form of ritual consumption, you know, it's large numbers of people. And the fact that the characters, we all know, the actors are enacting. And that uh, feature of enactment itself introduces a different kind of energy and dynamic. In other words, the, the theater has a, a certain immediacy. Also the embodiment, the people, they're human beings, flesh and blood, their gestures, their, the their tears, and so on, their anguish and anger. Imagine Lear screaming at his daughters or railing, raving against the, the, the elements and so on. That immediacy is somewhat uh, attenuated in tragedy, in, in the novel form. It attenuates it. I think what the novel does is that depending if it wants to be grim, to use your word. <laughs> if it wants to be grim, it can be by, by showing different uh, sides of grimness and elaborating it in a very steady way. The, the beauty of uh, season of migration to the north, apart from everything else, and this is going back to the after, you know, mm -hmm. the post-colonial after, mm -hmm. is that it is after in a way that requires us to revisit and reread the, the things that come prior. It's, it's genealogy. It, it resituates a genealogy by being coming after them. I have a chapter on Tayyip Saleh. Uh, one of the things that I say, uh, I don't know whether this will fly, is that Jane Morris actually wants him not to be a fake Othello. You know, he's been going around saying that I'm the man. You're going around. She says, you to prove that you are the man, be a passionate Othello. So when he sees her handkerchief, there's a, a handkerchief that is not his own in her room, and he asks her, she says, no, 
it is not yours, but what are you going to do about it? <laughs> You're not even a real Othello, you <laughs> punk. <laughs> Basically, that's what she's telling him. But when he saw the ritual, mer- he murders her and so on, when he's relaying the story to the interlocutor in the village, the thing that he says, which struck me very fascinatingly, fascinatingly is that that is the one thing that he regrets, not killing himself after he killed her. In other words, she enacted Desdemona and invited him to be the true Othello, but he failed. He's like, and this is what I write about, he's like a proof of mm-hmm. The moment of greatness is, is they offer it to him and he right. can't do it. Right. I don't think Prufrock slept with many women. Uh, <laughs> no, I think he was quite right not to kill himself because he's living out her fantasies of what Othello should be. That's what the novel is addressing. So he's right to resist the tragic paradigm. The pity of it is yeah. that he takes up so much of that burden. But he regrets it. Yeah, he lives. Oh with well, that's that because regret. he's yes, he's a colonial production as well as a a, a, a conqueror of the heart of the empire. That's his uh, achievement and failing. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of the Center for the Study of the Novels podcast Cafe. We would also like to thank Ado Quayson, Richard Halpern, and John Kerrigan for their generosity in agreeing to this conversation. Thanks to our team at the Center for the Study of the Novel, to An Chuang Nguyen and Maritza Colon for their operational support, to our graduate coordinators, Victoria Zarita, Cynthia Giancotti, and Casey Patterson, to Eric Fredner for editing, consultation, and sound engineering, and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English Department at Stanford University. Mm